Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, so this morning, we're going to be doing the first lesson in what's going to be this year's uh, sermon theme. So uh, last year, we did Ephesians 4, so somewhat naturally, it seemed appropriate to just proceed on and do Ephesians 5 and 6. Uh, but a part of that, um, every year when I'm thinking about a yearly theme, I'm trying to think about what would be the most edifying thing for this church right now to go through. And Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 are just continually rich still with applications that I think would be just extremely helpful for us as a church to meditate on and to be striving to apply. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5 through 6 through the year. And the theme title here, Learning to Walk in Wisdom with God, the idea of walking is emphasized actually quite a bit in these two chapters. But if you even look back at chapter 4, remember in verse 1, the theme for the last year was learning to walk worthy of the calling. Well, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ also loved you. In verse 8, he says, walk as children of light. But in verse 15 through 17, this is really where we're going to be anchoring our theme in these two chapters. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So what we're going to be trying to do throughout this year is focusing on chapters 5 and 6. We're going to be looking at wisdom as our theme for drawing out very practical applications for each section of Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. So we're going to be starting with just the first two verses, dealing with how wisdom both observes and imitates God. But we'll look at in the next lesson how wisdom considers consequences, dealing with the warnings in verses 3 through 7 how wisdom embraces exposure, walking as children of light, how wisdom seeks to make the most of our time, how wisdom is sober-minded, spirit-filled, how wisdom sings and submits. Then we'll look at some practical wisdom for families, wisdom for wives, husbands, fathers, wisdom for servants and masters, and then looking at uh, the rest of chapter 6 with the armor of God. We'll look at how wisdom recognizes our spiritual struggle and battle, how it depends on God's strength and how wisdom finally prays with purpose. So with verses 1 and 2, I want to start by thinking about the value of knowing God as our Father. So in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, there's a word, therefore, which means that it's really summarizing an application that's drawing from everything that's been said previously. So with all of the applications we've been looking at at chapter 4, all of these things are really reflections of who God is as our Father. So he says, again, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So I just want to think for the first point of this lesson, again, on the value of really seeing God as our Father. This might be something that um, sounds so simple, but I think is quite profound and easy to take for granted. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we're going to read some of the first verses in Ephesians. 
But it is a vital and astonishing reality in our salvation that Jesus makes us children of God. And that in salvation, God becomes our perfect, loving, and committed father. And something that I really want to focus on this morning is really trying to think about how important it is that we truly see God as our loving father. And that we really see ourselves as his beloved children. What I mean by this is not just using the term father in reference to God as just a nice term or something theoretical or ambiguous but that we really understand the value of interacting with God as a father to us, how important that is. So if you're in Ephesians 1, I'm going to read verses 3 through 6, and we'll just think a little bit more about this after reading these verses. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So notice verse 5 particularly. God predestined, he had a purpose that he was looking forward to and working towards from before the foundation of the world, that one day he would be able to adopt children in his family through Jesus Christ. So just beginning to think about this, I think when we're thinking about sin's gravest consequences, I think one of the worst consequences that we really see in God's word is how blinding sin is. Not just blinding to the fact that we can't see the value of God, but that sin blinds us to seeing the depth of his love as a father. That sin makes us feel complacent and content living independent from God. Sin blinds us to how praiseworthy God's works are, as we sang in our songs this morning already. So sin's consequence, one of its greatest consequences, is really that we just don't see these things as a reality or value them practically as we see people like David in the Psalms, which we'll be looking at in just a moment. So with that, though, maybe a little more specifically, something we see in the Old Testament particularly, the Old Testament story from Genesis all the way through Malachi, this thousands of years that God was working to send Jesus into the world, the Old Testament is characterized not by people who love God and are devoted to him, but rather that God is desperately pursuing people. Specifically, God is desperately pursuing Israel, yet the story of the Old Testament is that despite all of God's efforts, despite his exhaustive diligence in doing everything he possibly can to win a relationship with mankind, God throughout the Old Testament is being overlooked, rejected, and taken for granted. This is especially seen in the message of the prophets. You remember Hosea, for instance. One of the most memorable things about the prophets is that Hosea was told to go and marry a prostitute given to harlotry. He was told to love her and have children in the marriage with her. And yet, as the beginning of Hosea goes on, 
his wife, he finds out, is having children by another man. She's continuing in her prostitution while married to him, and eventually she leaves him. And yet, a few chapters beyond that, Hosea buys his past wife back, recommits himself to her to win her affection. And this is meant to be a living embodiment of what God was doing with mankind. That God, despite all of his efforts, is constantly overlooked and rejected. His love is constantly being thrown aside. And yet, God, through the diligence of his work through scripture, would eventually win a people to himself who would recognize him and want to be with him. And what we see is it required all of the things that God ever did to undo the damage of sin's blinding effect. And we are the recipients, in verse 5, of this predestined purpose who now in verse 3 have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are a people in verse 6 who God lavishly pours out his grace on so that we can bring praise to the glory of this great work that he's done to bring us into his family. And so the Old Testament and just knowing God's word and meditating on what he's done is meant to be taken very personally. You know, adoption is something that we know in this local church because we've seen this happen in our church with the Bates family, for instance, um, how they've had to go out of their way to adopt children who are born in circumstances that just were not good. And they've brought children into their house through adoption so they could love these children, so that they could embrace them and give them hope and give them a good life surrounded by love and cherish them. So the more we understand how God has been overlooked through time, the incredible nature of who God is, how amazing it is to be able to be in his family despite how undeserving and unworthy we are, the more we can think about in a very humbling way how incredible it is how much God has sacrificed to reach us specifically. And that that helps us then reflect on God in very real terms. So just as an example of this, being a little bit older, I'm able to reflect back on my childhood and I'm able in my adulthood to be able to appreciate things I took for granted when I was very young and in my parents' household. I can appreciate better the monetary sacrifices my parents had to make to raise me and to keep me in their household. I can appreciate things that I took for granted, resources of love that my parents were exhausting I can appreciate better even gifts that my parents gave me when I was unappreciative. I can appreciate better how my parents were spent emotionally in times where they were very worried about the condition that I was in spiritually, the direction that I was going in with my life, or even just the emotional exhaustion of thinking about how to raise me, how to support me, how to help me find purpose in my life. And God is no different. Everything that's true about a good parent is more true about God. Anything we value about our parents growing up is heightened and glorified in our relationship with God. So if I'm able to look back and see how my parents had made sacrifices that I failed to appreciate growing up, how much more can I appreciate then that God has done things that I've overlooked by sin and been blind to, things that should attach me to him as my loving father? So something very practical, and we're going to see this in Psalm 63. None of these things are simply theoretical truths. We need to think about these things in more real terms. 
We need to be striving to use biblical, biblical language when we are thinking and talking about our relationship with God with others. Something really simple, for instance, as parents, talking to your children about how we were once lost, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but not just that we were baptized and received forgiveness, that God raised us up from the, from the dead. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. He's committed himself to us by covenant. He's sustaining our every breath. He's working everything out for good. He is delivering us from every trial. He is purposing in everything to bring us into his glory. And so there's things that God says in his word that we simply need to think about in more real, more tangible terms. We can talk about those things with one another in those ways as well. And so I think one of the things that we need to think about as well is in Ephesians 5 verse 1, it mentions that we are not just children of God, but beloved children. That word beloved um, in the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that word is only used one way. It's only ever used of God's view of Jesus himself. It's only ever used of God calling Jesus his beloved son. So maybe a way to think about this more practically as well. So Eva and Becca are two of eight children, right? And their parents loved them very much. But I've heard from both Eva and Becca that growing up in a household of eight children, that there were times where they just kind of got lost in the numbers, right? There were so many kids, their parents couldn't possibly invest in them constantly at every moment where they may have needed comfort or needed to be disciplined. So in reality, there's just a lot of things that they got away with. And there were a lot of times where their parents just maybe weren't as aware of what was going on with them simply because there's just so many kids in their household. And that doesn't mean they weren't beloved, but again, it's just a reality of the household. But the idea of being a beloved child of God means that we are not overlooked any moment by God. So it's not just that God has adopted us in the past and that when we were baptized, we were received into God's family and then, well, that's it. Now we're on our own. The fact that God is our perfect father and that we are beloved children of God, you think about the one-on-one relationship that God had with his own son in his earthly ministry. Do you think... Jesus, at any point in his earthly life, was being overlooked, neglected, or forgotten by God? Do you think at any point God was not thoughtfully pouring out the fullness of his wisdom to providentially make the most of every single moment in Jesus' life? Everything that we are told to do in Ephesians is simply a reflection of God's own character. When we're told to redeem the time and make the most of it, God's not simply charging us as a master from a distance to do something just to be busy and productive. As we imitate God, we better understand him. So think about with your children, those of you who are parents. I know from my friends who are parents that they'll reflect on how they can better appreciate their parents and the decisions they made now that they have kids. Or they're able to even better appreciate the struggles their parents went through because now they are struggling with the same things as parents. 
as we imitate God, we recognize that his instructions are reflections of his character. And even when we struggle with those applications, we can better appreciate God's character as we know that he's chosen to apply those things more perfectly himself. So being a beloved child means that whether or not we recognize it, whether we're aware enough to see it, God is busy making the most of every moment with us. That God every day, no matter how aware we are again, every day is filled with the wisdom of God, working towards us and with us, not as distant children, not as children who are getting lost in the shuffle of all the redeemed throughout the world, but that God is as fixed on his relationship with us as he was with his own son. The question is, do you value that focus that God has on you? Are you aware of how fixed God is on you? So finally, with this first point, we need Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I think fundamentally we have to appreciate that sometimes it's not so much about, well, what do I do with this? What's the practical thing I do right now? Let's start with understanding what's going on in our relationship with God. Look at Ephesians 1, 15 through 20. We simply need to better understand what God is doing with us. Look at Paul's prayer. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen, in verses 19 and 20, if there is any doubt that God works in us and toward us just as he does with Jesus, notice in verse 20, he says, this is the same power which was exercised towards Jesus when he raised him from the dead. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he begins to go on that what God did with us in salvation is when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are as beloved to God as his one beloved son who died and was risen from the dead by his power. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, again, the more we understand, the more we understand God, that he is our father, the more motivated we will be to serve him and imitate him. Lastly with this, if I asked you, how much would you like to imitate your parents? There may be qualities that you would think, well, there are things that I would like to imitate. But for some of you, there might be many things that you'd think, I do not want this in my character or in my life one bit. I talked to a friend of mine on the phone recently who has young toddlers. 
uh, about the age of Jason and Marie's children. And he mentioned that when he even gets frustrated. So he used an example of when he was getting in the car one day and he was frustrated. That he could tell that his child in the back seat immediately began to get frustrated. And it made him reflect back on his own father. And he remembered his father's temper. And he thought, I don't want this to be a part of my relationship with my children as it was with my relationship with my father, right? But God is a perfect father. We should want as much wisdom as possible to know as much as we possibly can about him because everything he does, we want to be a part of our life. So with this, turn to Psalm 63. I just want to think for a moment about how imitating God really begins with admiring who he is. And I think this relates to what Paul is praying for in Ephesians chapter 1, that we could be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, to people like David, understanding that God was his father was not something ambiguous or theoretical. It was very practical for David. Think about another psalm that is very famously quoted. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So he focuses on God is very active in my life. So Psalm 63, we're going to look at how these truths for David were the most important realities of his life. Again, not just theoretical principles, but life-changing truths. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So I just want to look at some principles really quick from this psalm that I think really equip us to think with more wisdom about our knowledge of God, how we can be interacting with God as a father. Prayer really is one of the most fundamental applications of this. You remember even Jesus' model prayer where he's teaching us in his model prayer to see God as an active and perfect father. He begins by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? Our Father. So in this prayer, one thing I think we see in this psalm is that the issue of observing God, being aware of his work, being able to see that God is active in my life, that he is doing things with me and for me, The issue is not whether or not God is involved, right? The issue is whether my view of him is open enough to see it. It's our view of God that needs to be changed and developed. Just like a child in infancy may just kind of be receiving things from God, but where is it coming from? (laughs) What decisions are the parents making to do these things for me? Where are they going when they leave the house and coming back at the end of the day? 
So childhood is filled with ignorance and receiving without acknowledging, whereas maturity recognizes decisions that are made, sacrifices being made, recognizing where things are coming from, the kind intention behind what is being given. It's our view of God that must be developed. So here's some principles. We will imitate God the more we desire him. If you look at verse 1 and 2, David desired God more than he desired any earthly thing. If you look at verse 1, there's a deliberate decision that David makes, and we see this throughout the Psalms. David's pursuit of God was not circumstantial, and it was not accidental. David didn't simply stumble upon his love for God, being, after a, being a man after God's own heart. This was a decision David renewed within himself. If you look at verse 1, it's as if David is in command of himself. He says, O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. You know, and I love the words where he says, I thirst for you. My soul thirsts for you. Think about how desperately someone desires water when there's none to be found. How it begins to consume your thoughts that I I need this to live. To David, what he needed more than water, what he needed more than food to survive, he needed his relationship with God more than that. Is that evidence in your life? that you desire God more than you desire leisure, vacation, entertainment, food, clothing, shelter. To David, his desire for God was the foundation that everything else was built on in his life. And in verse 2, he deliberately sought God out. When he says, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary, it's a poetic statement. David could not literally go within the sanctuary of God. Only priests were allowed to do that. So, for instance, you had to be from the tribe of Levi to actually enter into the temple or the tabernacle, as it would have been in David's life. But David understood in a truth that God is within a hidden place, that God's place of dwelling is protected from the view of the ungodly. And so he made the decision that I'm going to seek God out on his terms where he is. Because the way that we see God like Ephesians 1 is not with visible eye, but through the eyes of our heart being enlightened, seeing God through faith. And so David made the decision he has sought God out to see his power and his glory. The more we desire God, the more we will imitate him. But we'll also imitate God the more we admire him. And I think this is one of the clearest principles of youth. That why do we imitate our parents, especially when they have qualities that are worth imitating? It's because children in their household, they admire their parents. I remember even just really silly, subtle things. There was one day I remember sitting next to my dad, sitting in an assembly when I was very young. Maybe he was like seven years old. And I was looking at my dad's hands, and he had these, like, skin scratches on his thumb. And so I started digging into my thumb, trying to dig up my skin so that my thumb would look the same as his. Just, again, just the silliness of it. But it's because I admired my dad to such a degree that I was looking for ways to be like him. Even the subtleties of the skin on his nail of his thumb. 
the more we admire God, the more we recognize the subtleties of his character, the more we recognize the things that unless we seek it out, we're not going to be aware that he's doing it. Look in verse 3, 4, and 5. Three times, three times, David emphasizes, I will praise you. The end of verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. Verse 5, my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. I think something important to recognize about praise is how it is distinct from thanks. Thanks involves receiving a gift. So obviously if I receive something from someone as a gift, the natural response is you say thank you. Praise is different from this. Praise does not necessarily involve receiving anything. Praise is the recognition of something done well. It's recognition of an accomplishment. So think about people who are uh, great sports heroes or when somebody achieves something in the world that's very impressive or something economically impressive. Generally, generally, they will receive praise for their achievement. Think about all the things that God has achieved, all the things that God has accomplished. We even sing a song, Jesus doeth all things well. Think about the enormity of accomplishments we have access to reading God's word. Something very practical with this, I would encourage you to to try this. I've been trying to put into practice with my prayers when I read God's word, after I read it, praising God for whatever I just read and the events held within it. So you may be starting a new Bible reading plan, starting in Genesis or Exodus. After reading Genesis or after reading the events of Exodus, Give God praise for the things that he did in those books of the Bible. Or things that might be confusing. Maybe you get to Leviticus and you're reading about the sacrificial system and the different things they would offer to God or the different laws. Praise God for those sacrifices, for the goodness of those laws. And even for how challenging it can be. Praise God for the challenge of meditating on those things and being able to come to know him. Praise God that he's given us his word to be able to know him and know him perfectly. Ultimately, you know what the purpose of Leviticus is? Despite it being what seems like an irrelevant law that we no longer practice, ultimately, Leviticus is teaching us about who God is. Exodus is teaching us about who God is. All of these books of the Bible in their whole form Jesus would say that everything had always been testifying to his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his character. We should be looking for reasons to give God ardent praise. We will also imitate God the more we learn how dependent we are on him. If you look at verse 7 and 8, You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. You know, David also is not somebody that thought that God's deliverances or that the protection of his life was simply coincidental or accidental or circumstantial. David recognized that as a beloved child, God was actively protecting him. 
that even when David seemed to be in danger, as he would say in Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup overflows. So David understood through the eye of faith that even when it would seem that his life was in danger, God was not passively looking on as an observer. God was working deliverance. God was protecting him with purpose. God was being faithful to David with all of his promises as a faithful and perfect father. So David understood in verse 7, you have been your help. And that he recognized that as his life would continue on with God, that God was faithfully delivering him from every trial. And in verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. The idea of the right hand is God's full power. Remember Ephesians 1, where Paul was praying that we could know the working of the strength of his might, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead. The more we understand our relationship with God, the more we understand how dependent we are on him. These are the same reasons why little children, again, naturally began to imitate the things of their parents. They recognize that they are dependent on that relationship. They admire their parents. They desire that relationship. They desire recognition and approval from their parents. We simply need to humble ourselves like little children to see these things. Finally, in Ephesians 5 verse 2, it mentions that we need to be walking in love as Christ loved us, giving himself as an offering and a sacrifice and a soothing aroma to God. Turn to Exodus 33. Uh, I just want to kind of look briefly at something that I think heightens the value of what we have being able to observe God so intimately and learn from him, especially as we look at the example of Jesus. In Exodus chapter 33, God had delivered Israel out of Egypt. He'd led them into the wilderness. And as Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving instruction from God that would bring him into the midst of Israel, the congregation at the foot of that mountain had made a golden calf, betraying the most fundamental instruction that God had given them, not to make any image to replace him. And so Moses goes down and he finds this golden calf being worshipped. And after uh, interceding for the people and begging God to show them mercy, God listens to Moses. And in verse 12, Moses seeks God even more earnestly through all of this. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up your people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and have also found favor in, in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And if you look down at verse 16, he says, For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all other people who are upon the face of the earth? And then in verse 18, and Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Nothing mattered more to Moses than coming to know God as fully as possible. You know, and to Moses, he could see that there were things about God that were still not very clear. And so he would beg God, help me understand who you are. Show me your ways. 
Pause on that thought and turn to Isaiah 63 now. Obviously, a great deal of time later in the times of the kings, Israel at this point was in a horrible condition as Isaiah was prophesying to the nation. And Isaiah, reflecting on the condition of the nation and how disconnected, it seems, God's promises are from the time he's living. And he says this in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 15 and 17. And again, this is related to the point in Exodus 33 that for the righteous, nothing is more coveted than to know God as fully as possible. Isaiah 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Isaiah, in reflecting on the grandeur of God's promises, again, he recognizes that there are things that God's promising where if only if it was accomplished, God would soften the hearts of his people. And recognizing that there's still more to be accomplished where God will make himself more fully known in the future to some people later in a way that in his time was not fully revealed. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And I think Jesus ends up culminating here these ideas in Exodus and Isaiah. That God was working to fully manifest himself, but reserving the treasures of wisdom that are fully found in Christ for us now that Christ has come. Look at Luke chapter 10, 21 through 24. So here Jesus, it says, at that very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, and uh, for I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. It is according to Jesus' own perspective, the most valuable treasure in all existence, the thing that Moses coveted more than anything else in his life, the thing that Isaiah was pleading with God to accomplish. And yet to Moses, to Isaiah, to everybody who lived before Christ, these things had not yet been fully revealed. And so Jesus would say to the disciples, there are many prophets, many kings, who desire to see and to hear the things that you're seeing and hearing. And they didn't get to see them, nor did they get to hear them. And now this treasure is just thrown at our feet. So finally, as an invitation, I want to look at the words of Job 28 and ask the question, what is this treasure worth to you? What is it worth to be able to know God so intimately as your own loving father? What kind of value does it have that you would be a beloved child of God? That God would 
lavish his promises on you in a way that reflects the lavish work that he did in glorifying Jesus. What is that treasure worth to you? Job 28, verses 1 through 11. In Job, this is simply a reflection on the value of wisdom. And it says in verse, tw- verse 1 of chapter 28, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust and copper is smelted from rock. So he's dealing with things that people value, things that are useful, things that people use for their lives and for gaining things that people will then purchase or value themselves. Verse 3, man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock in gloom and deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro far from men. The earth from it comes food and underneath it is turned up as fire. Its rocks are the source of sapphires, and its dust contains gold. No path, the path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint, he overturns the mountains at the base. He hews out channels through the rocks, and his eye sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to light. The idea is people will do incredible things to find and attain hidden but valuable things. People will exhaust themselves. They'll put themselves at risk. They'll make time for it. Is knowing God even worth your time? Is it evident in your life that to know God has any value at all? Is it worth reading God's word every day to come to better understand God? Is it worth it to apply God's word to speak truth and not lies? To labor and share? To speak words of edification and let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth? Is it worth the sacrifice to put away malice, bitterness, anger, clamor, and to put on kindness, forgiveness, patience, long-suffering? What is it worth to you to dig up these treasures of wisdom that God has thrown at our feet 12 through 28. For the sake of time, we'll summarize a few things. It says, But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. In verse 16, it cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of gold. It says in verse 21, Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky, Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it, he established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Depart from evil is understanding. As Paul said, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is it worth to know God as a father? What is it worth to know the ways of Jesus and to imitate them? 
What is it worth to grow in just understanding the ways of God, having more ability to give him praise, and having more ability to simply be aware of his goodness and the lavish grace we've received? Throughout this year, we're going to be focusing on God's wisdom. And that's the question I want to begin the series with, is what is it worth to you? If there's anything we can do this morning to bring you into God's family by submitting to the gospel, if your desire is to submit to the truth of the gospel, to die with Christ in baptism, to be raised with him and to become a part of that family, we have water here in the building that we can use to baptize you. If there's anything else we can do, please come and make it known when we stand and sing. Invitation song.